I invite you all now to open your Bibles in the book of Esther. We are beginning a new series on that book, so keep your markers if you have one, and those pages will be coming regularly to that book throughout the summer. We will, if you're new here or visiting with us, this is our this is what we do usually. We go through entire books of the Bible, and we will go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, throughout the summer, look at the book of Esther, and learn from our God what he, reveal, he reveals to us in it. Today we'll read chapter uh, 1 in its entirety, Esther chapter 1. Receive this with faith. This is the word of our God. Thus says the Lord, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed them the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and linen and purple to silver rods, and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsana, and Mamukon, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, What is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the commands of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then 
Mamukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the, all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be, known to, will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say, to the, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, and there will be con- if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Some things in life can be deceptively tricky. Stacking M&Ms, for example. (laughs) Do you know what is the Guinness World Record for the tallest stack of M&Ms is? One of you sitting here today actually once asked me that question, and I have been thinking about it ever since. You probably, I assume, never tried to stack M&Ms, so you start thinking, World record. How much is too much to even guess? It's the world record. 10, 20. It shouldn't be this hard, should it? Let me tell you, it is because I tried. <laughs> the Guinness World Record for the tallest stack of M&Ms belongs to 22-year-old Australian Brandon Kelby who broke the previous joint record by stacking six M&Ms. Yes. Only once in the history of humanity since the dawn of times has a human being stacked more than five M&Ms. And it feels like a letdown, doesn't it? You expect it way more. Until, like I said, as I did, you try to do it yourself. When you try, you realize that stacking two M&Ms is very hard, and three is impossible. It's just impossible. And then you remember Brendan Kelby stacked six, and you think to yourself, wow. (laughs) Again, some things in life can be deceptively hard. And today, unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that in part, life itself can be deceptively hard. You see, we live in a world that is not our home. 
We are here, but we're not from here. From the most mundane, mundane daily tasks to the big decisions in life, we always perform a balancing act caused by this tension. The existential stacking of life's M&Ms, I would call it. On the one hand, we have pledged our allegiances to governments and flags, which in itself it's not a bad thing. But it's still, as Christians, we know we live under the rule of the king of kings. The question is, how do we do that? Meanwhile, we look at the book of Esther, and in it, the God we met in the book of Kings, our previous sermon series, for example, the God who made fire come down from heaven and rescued even a poor seminarian from having to buy a new axe, seems eerily silent and distant when we need to decide who to marry, where to send our children to school. Again, how then goes the old question, should we live in this world? Today, as I said, we begin a new sermon series on the book of Esther to investigate all these questions. Today's text will introduce us to themes that will run through the course of the entire book, we will hear about life under the empire. We'll hear about the silent providence of God. And above all, we will meet the good king who uses even the most surprising and most mundane means to rescue his people from utter annihilation. In some, Esther 1, chapter 1 in particular, teaches us that in the confusing world that we live in, God is silently helping us to keep our balance. Again, Esther 1 teaches that in the confusing world that we live in, God is silently helping us to keep our balance. We'll first see in verses 1 through 8 that the shadow of the empire of this world looms large. The shadow of the empire of this world looms large, verses 1 through 8. Where are we in Esther? Who are these people? Why does a book called Esther not show us anyone named Esther in its first chapter? We will find all of that in time. But for now, let us get some context to what is happening here in this chapter. Chapter 1 introduces us to the great empire of Ahasuerus, emperor of Persia and the Medes, also known maybe by some of you by his most more uh, famous Greek name, Xerxes. There are even movies made about him. He ruled over the most known world, from modern-day Pakistan to modern-day Sudan, over 127 provinces. And right now, as we come to chapter 1, we find the emperor in Susa, one of the four capital cities of the empire. There, he throws a party for everyone that was someone in the government, nobles, governors, army leaders, and that lasts for more than six months. Most people we meet, let me tell you in, in Esther chapter 1, will not reappear as the book unfolds. Yet, this chapter helps paint us a picture of the context of where this narrative will take place. 
This is why the author, I believe, begins by describing Ahasuerus, his power, his wealth, and even his palace. Did you notice that? Many commentators notice and help me out with this. The only place in the Old Testament described with so much detail as Ahasuerus palace is the tabernacle and the temple. The curtains, the rods, the cords, the pillars. Even a single chair there in that palace would cost more than our entire social hall renovation project. It was made of gold. To top it off, all that extravaganza, at the end of this six-month six long party, Ahasuerus gives the last call, a seven-day banquet for everyone in the citadel of Susa, both great and small. Everyone who came had even their own customized golden cup to drink from. Clearly, this emperor has wealth, health, and money, and he does not shy away from showing it, so everyone knows who are they dealing with. However, before you get scared of that emperor, one final detail in this party lifts up the curtain just a little bit for us to see, to see something underneath all this glitter and gold. Verse 8, And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. You look at this and you should think, wait a minute. What kind of government throws a party and enacts a law that says that people cannot not drink? First, I believe this edict shows us how deeply and tightly Ahasuerus wants to control his own people. This is a lie for those who live in Persia. The emperor says, drink, and you say, how much? The emperor says, party, and you say, how hard? The emperor tells his servants to clap, and you have no option but to dance. Having already in our tally two three-hour sessions at the DMV that led to nothing and did not solve our problems, Marty and I know all too well how dreadful it is, and I know you know this feeling too, to fall in the hands of a petty bureaucrat. <laughs> no, one's like those. no one likes those. But life in Persia clearly is ruled by them. And don't you dare not do what they tell you to. At the same time, this government-regulated party has another vital facet for us to understand life in Persia. While this first section should leave us in awe of Ahasuerus, even angry a little bit about so much taxpayer money being thrown away in a party like that, isn't it a bit ridiculous that a man so powerful thinks he could control how much people even drink? Doesn't this kind of minutia-regulated power actually reveal some weakness and insecurity? 
Whatever point you are in the big or small government debate, don't we all laugh when we read, and this is true, I did some research, that there is a law in Washington state that forbids you from shooting a or the Bigfoot? <laughs> that doing so was initially, and I quote, punishable by a fine not to exceed $10,000 and or imprisonment? Is this what our authorities are occupied with? And then in 1984, the penalty was changed to up to one year in jail and or a $1,000 fine. Yes, they took a second look at that law concerning shooting Bigfoot, and the only thing they could think was, the penalty is too harsh. The whole Persian edict thing of no compulsion should make you laugh, as you've done, because this is precisely the world that we live in. The empire we find ourselves in, driven by materialism, for example, places a desperate focus on possessions. It demands that we immerse ourselves in, the, in its standards, know its laws, and strive for success according to them. It entices to daydream of extravagant, extravagant banquets and lavish gardens. It encourages to dedicate our lives to pursue those dreams. People of God, we must learn to laugh at these schemes to protect from assimilation into this empire. We should laugh at ourselves even when we find our hearts yearning for the empire's valued possessions. We laugh at a six-month party with luxurious furnishing on extravagant pavements that you are compelled to drink. How much more foolish are we then when we expend excessive time and energy desiring material objects like sports cars, fashionable shoes, or the latest home improvements? You see all of this, and you start noticing that the emperor's new clothes are actually quite transparent. We can see he is naked, and a discerning eye will see the ridiculousness of wearing such clothing. Which will lead us to our second point this morning. The emperor is naked. We'll see that from verses 9 to 18. The emperor is naked. In verse 9, we learn that another party was happening at the same time, hosted by Queen Vashti, for all the women of all those guys at the fret party next door. Then, on the last day of that seven-day party, after drinking without compulsion for seven days, the emperor has an idea. He has shown before his fellows his gold, his armory. Now it is time to show forth his trophy. He sends seven eunuchs to fetch the queen, probably because carrying Queen Vashi on her royal seat would take that many men to parade her in front of everyone. She should come with her royal crown, for as the text says, she was lovely to look at. Vashti was the crown jewel of a hazardous collection and should be on display, he thinks. For Vashti, the decree of there is no compulsion 
was not an option. Yet, as I said at this point, we see the first glimpses of the not-so-opaque clothing of the emperor. Why? Because she plain out simply refuses to come. She would not be treated as a doll before the royal keg party. For those who fear the mighty power of the empire, here is a first crack in its armor. No laws in this world can change change someone's behavior or their hearts. The king, of course, drunk as a skunk, as they say, gets mad. This is probably the best time in this chapter to tell you that in Hebrew, the name Ahasuerus has no particular meaning or direct translation that is often the case with Hebrew names. However, there is a reason why the author of Esther chose to call him instead of the more name, famous name Xerxes. When pronounced out loud in Hebrew, Ahasuerus sounds a lot like headache. <laughs> Furious and inebriated, Emperor Headache does not know how to handle a single marital issue. So he does what we always do in those situations, right? He summons the Supreme Court. The seven princes of Persia and Media get together to deliberate. This is how we do things here in the empire. We summon the bureaucrats. One of them, Supreme Justice Mamukan, drafts his position. Look, oh mighty emperor, this is bad. This is really bad. If word goes out, what will other women think? That they can just say no to their husbands? Mm-mm, mm-mm. We must do something. As the proverb goes, Vashti was the nail who dared to stick her head out and now the empire will hammer her down before it's too late. But what about us? What do we do with Queen Vashti and her refusal to come before her husband? Many modern-day feminists quickly promote Queen Vashti's courage to the detriment of her successor's perceived mild manners. She was a hero who dared to say no. Others, and unfortunately, I should say many others, use Vashti to speak of the dangers of a wife that does not submit to her own husband. What do we say then? Is she good or is she bad? In her commentary on Esther, Karen Jobes, one of the most brilliant Old Testament scholars alive, has a lengthy treatment of this issue. And this is her argument. It's not that hard. Do you see what the text says about Vashti's rebellion? How she's judged by that? Tricky question. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say she's right, nor says she's wrong. Just says that she refused to come before a drunken king. Job's point out that the story's goal is not to evaluate whether Vashti is a good or a bad example. That's not how we go reading this story. Right now, she's merely a pawn in the schemes of a drunken, evil, and foolish king. 
While she does not appear in this chapter, we all know this book tells the story of Queen Esther and her dealings with Ahasuerus. So before you even meet Esther, Vashti serves as a warning sign. Here is what happens when a woman stands up to the mad emperor. Will Esther be up for the task? We will see that in the next chapter. But for now, on this point, if Vashti is to serve as an example of anything, it's this. I know that the passages of spouse submission and Paul and Peter in the New Testament can sometimes be very hard to interpret, to hear, to apply. However, we know what they do not mean. Women in this room, hear this, take it to heart. Don't let any man ever use the Bible to say you're a bad wife because you did not submit to the whims of a drunken, evil husband. This is certainly not what Paul and Peter had in mind when they spoke of submitting to your husbands in Christ. Still, Vashti poses a deeper problem to all of us. Is this what we will get if we defy the empires of this world in which we live? Will we all be hammered down under the insurmountable weight of the bureaucratic machine and unfavorable Supreme Court rulings? Are we always going to be at the mercy of the rich and powerful? This will lead, to our fin- lead us to our final point this morning. From verses 19 to 22, long live the good king. Long live the good king. What does a king with no power to control one person through his commands do? He issues new commands now to everyone. Ahasuerus listens to Supreme Justice Mamukan, and they issue this new edict that edict that travels throughout the entire empire. Vashti will no longer be queen. Someone better than she should be in place. And let that be a warning to all women from the 127 provinces. Verse 22, every man be master of your own household. This is life in Persia. The empire is run by a fool, unable to think for himself, surrounded by advisors with great ideas but very little insight. They solve the problem of not wanting the man to be embarrassed by telling everyone in the known world that their emperor was embarrassed. And the solution is to turn the command that did not work to change Vashti into an empire-wide law that certainly would not compel any women in the 127 provinces leaving with other drunk and full men to submit to them. This is the solution that they try. One commentator, commentator says that the scene is like seeing a surgeon that will operate on you, practicing by cutting logs with chainsaws and repeatedly missing the target. But this 
as I said, unfortunately, is the world that we live in. A world where more often than not, the power is in the hands of the incompetent, surrounded by the fools and the immoral. A world where the head that sticks out gets hammered. A world where power and wisdom are frequently unconnected. How, then, is the question. Do we balance our obedience to God while keeping our heads attached to our necks in such a world? One of the great themes of Esther that we already see today is that God's working are often hidden and require patience to understand. Although God is not directly mentioned or visibly present in this chapter, or let me tell you, even the whole book of Esther, for that matter, he is actively at work behind the scenes, orchestrating events for the good of his people. The seemingly ordinary and even unimportant human actions and coincidences in the story today are part of God's plan to position Esther to protect his people from a powerful enemy that has not even shown his head yet. God's involvement can be subtle and different from what we expect and even typically see in the Bible. In our own lives, we may not understand what God is doing as he may seem distant and unresponsive to our prayers. However, our story is not over yet. And the seemingly unrelated events may eventually, possibly, come together meaningfully to us. The point is, just because we can't see God's actions, it doesn't mean he's not active. His work often occurs quietly and faithfully through ordinary circumstances, accomplishing his purposes for our lives. Finally, I can say all of this, and this is, we know that this is all true, because we serve a very different king from Ahasuerus. The book of Esther as a whole is an exercise of comparing and contrasting God's kingdom to the worldly empires in which you live in. God, on the one hand, yes, like Ahasuerus, is a powerful king whose authority cannot and should not be challenged However, on the other hand, God's laws are always beneficial for us. Unlike Ahasuerus, who relies on cunning but reckless advisors, God invites his people into a loving relationship with him. God's kingdom operates in hidden yet effective ways, unlike the bureaucratic gold and glitter of the empire. Finally, think about what the Bible has to say about one final banquet in the book of Revelation. Think about the king that will be there and think about his bride. Rather than seeing his bride as an object to be toyed with, Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, selflessly gave himself for a bunch of unattractive, wicked, and dirty people like you and me sacrificing his own life to wash us and make us pure 
and beautiful to look at. All our blessings, everything good that we have, including our righteousness before God, comes from his generous hands. How can we not love a king who has loved us so freely and so greatly? With such a loving husband calling us, it is easy to obey his commands and his laws. How then do we live our lives, balancing our allegiances to the empires of this world and the kingdom of God? The empire seeks to enslave us, striving to assimilate our thoughts and values into its own. It dangles enticing rewards before us, urging compliance with the definition of what is a successful life. Have you been tempted and ensnared by these enticements? Today, if that's the case, you are offered refuge in the kingdom that Jesus Christ is establishing. Learn to laugh at the emptiness of the empire's priorities and its promises. Trust in the good king, our beloved Jesus Christ, and find solace and hope in his provision of forgiveness and eternal life, bought by his selfless sacrifice on the cross. Live according to his commands, for true and real wisdom resides in them. Even when we do not see it, he remains faithful to his promise, working even through the wicked deeds of the rich and powerful of this world for the ultimate good, of those who love and trust him. Remember, finally, the world, this world that we live in is not our final home. One day he will come to be with us, he will renew all things, and we will not have to struggle anymore with lives falling apart like a pile of only six M&Ms. Then, we will be brought before him with joy, a glorious bride for a glorious and good king, and the banquet will only be the beginning. Come, O bride of Christ. Your husband is calling you today. Let us pray. Almighty God, your only son came to earth as a servant and is now enthroned at your right hand where he rules in glory. As he reigns as a king over the entire world and in our hearts, may we rejoice in his peace, glory in his justice, and live in his love. For with you and the Holy Spirit, he rules now and forever. In his name we pray, and together we say, amen.